You're listening to Sugar House Sound. Hey, y'all, this is Marlena Mercado. I'm here at Westminster College with Rachel Ellis Neda, who is a poet theorist and teaches Latinx Black Poetics and Performance Art at Wesleyan University. Thank you, Marlene. Um, very excited to be here at Westminster and to be visiting Salt Lake City with Super Chilling, my dog, who's keeping me warm here during this podcast. Just to give a little bit of background on myself, I am a Westminster alum and currently have applied to different graduate programs. So I'm in the process of deciding where to go. I just want to shout out and give props to Professor Eileen Chanza Torres and thank her for being a gracious host and thank Levi Barrett for also um, helping to host me and my time here and, and for making the sound recording. We're here today to talk about debt and finance regarding graduate school as well as poetics. So we'll be breaking up the podcast into two portions. And just to say to, to listeners, so that sequence of nouns might sound funny together, debt, finance, grad school, and poetics, but there are connections that will move across our Marlenes and my conversation about debt in graduate school and the poetry reading and a little conversation about poetics in the next section. So for us to get started, thinking about debt and finance. So like I mentioned, I am going to graduate school this fall. Right now I have two schools that I'm really thinking about and funding is definitely at the top of the list, you know, as well as where is my family located. So one school is over on, I guess what you could consider the East Coast or the Midwest. And then I have another school um, on the West Coast. So I've got family mostly on the West and Wanting to stay close to them is a, a big thing for me. So, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about funding and your perspective on that and other forms of funding because there's that initial package that they give you, right? But then there's assistantships and other opportunities. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to say a few things about my, maybe about my trajectory into graduate school. I went to SUNY Stony Brook and did a PhD in English there, but Maybe I'll just say some personal things about how I got there and then move into a discussion of debt and how I I would really rather, <laughs> in academia, we'd, we'd be much more candid in, in talking about debt and the university's relationship to finance capital and that finance, that the packages that are offered to graduate students and to different cohorts of um, incoming students. Uh, I think there should just be much more conversation, open, honest conversation about all of that. And then that does play out in relation to disciplinary choices that you're, for example, thinking about um, or thinking between English and American studies and thinking about the future and what kind of experience in the job market you might have uh, later after doing your course of study. Um, so there are questions then about marketability that come up, I think, along the way. So I, I'm my, my next book project, not the one I'm working on right now, but my next book project is a collaboration with Mary Ebling, who's, a, who's trained as a sociologist. She teaches at Drexel University, and we're going to be writing about debt and public emotions in Puerto Rico in particular. So I do think about debt in that way also as a research topic, but I think of it also as connected to emotional states and as having taking a kind of emotional um, tax on, on subjects who experience debt. So 
to back up a little bit though so i i grew up in the south i after a certain point knew that i wanted to escape <laughs> to and go to new york um, because i thought that's where the freaks went and so this was sort of my trajectory out of the south and towards new york uh, i wound up on long island for a lot of that time which was not at all anything i mean i had n i did not know what to expect of that place but long island is a place where i could feel the color line in a really particular way which reminded me a lot of the South, actually. I didn't, in the end, I didn't feel like I fled a certain structure. I felt like I found it again, but playing out on slightly different sort of ethnic and class lines there. But my trajectory, I was trying to get out of a, of a structure that was religious and homophobic also, and it was a, a kind of intellectually constraining structure for me also. But I started graduate school in 2005, um, and I was totally naive about, had no sort of outside figures giving guidance about predatory lending practices that come with schooling. Indeed, at the, the school that I went to in Tennessee, which is a private college, I had already gone into quite a lot of debt. Yeah, I mean, the, the kinds of predatory lending options, they're not options, but the kind of future indebtedness, because part of what happens, I think, in these lending schemes is they act like they're giving you something like you're the lucky one to be in that context and to get to stay there, quote unquote. But at this point, my thinking is totally different. They're robbing me of my future in, in the, the predatory lending practices that get enacted in university and college settings. And as I went into grad school, I wasn't thinking about any of these things in a, in a, a calculated way. And so and was entering more and more and more debt as time passed. I think you know, at, at this point, my generation of scholars, between ourselves, we do talk about the kind of debt, student loan debt that we have. Mine is basically equivalent to a, like a mortgage. It's like 180000 It's some sort of seemingly insurmountable sum. I say seemingly because for most of like the last, I don't know, it's the last six years, I've had a lot of anxiety about this debt and and feeling like there's no way out, which is actually where in part where black theories of constraint and Fred Moten uses this phrase about finding a way out of no way out um, actually conceptually is helpful to me even in thinking about debt because it's something I've pathologized too. I've taken it on as something that oh like this is so dumb why was I so naive about this why couldn't I see through these structures you know is it my training in critical theory and in critical thinking how did I not apply that sort of thinking to that construct and I'm not in as self-flagellating of, of a place as I have been in other moments. And and I will also be candid and say that DA, like Debtors Anonymous, has been helpful for me personally, actually around finding a way out of no way out, too, and not pathologizing um, my debt. But I think, so to come back to, I mean, I think my generation of academics, I think for a lot of us coming from either uh, working poor or lower middle class backgrounds, yeah, I think it's just predation. I think they're, they're, the, the lending schemes have been totally predatory, especially uh, in, in relation to minoritarian subjects who they both want to be in academia because they supposedly want to improve their, reform their structure and reform their racism. And there's a lot that's lacking in, in, in terms of how to incorporate, quote unquote, precisely such subjects. I don't believe in reform and I don't believe in incorporation or integration as successful models at all. I, I have a, a radical view of, of, and a very different, a kind of more parasitic relationship actually to academia. 
but this is the the sort of promise, you know, how lucky for you, how great that you're here. We want you to be here, but we're not going to actually help you figure out financially how the hell to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gone into a lot of debt in the process, and I do think there's more candor between people of my generation about the kind of debt we're in. But otherwise, I think in relation to especially like a lot of the people who the system's actually designed for and designed to protect. So for like white cisgendered pe people who come from kind of bourgeois backgrounds, the it's not just that my debt to income ratio is a, is is like a personal, it's like a real problem. It's a puzzle that I have to work and I have to live in a way to try to make emotional and, and just financial practical sense out of the situation. But there is also a tremendous disparity between my experience in academia, not only as a queer brown person, but also as a person who lives with um, in relation to a certain kind of debt, then the people I know, especially kind of like older faculty, who their class background set them up in a very different way as they were going into academia. So there's my own, you know, disparities of like income debt, feelings, whatever. But there's a huge income to debt disparity between my generation of scholars and I think an older generation of scholars. And this is something that I think post 2008 graduate programs have had to, after the, the financial calamity of, of, of post 2008, have had to attend to more and be much more responsible, quote unquote, about with incoming students. But I still don't think once you're there, like so once you're there at whichever of the schools you decide to go to, I would be surprised, but I, I mean, I, I hope you know, this will change. But in my experience, once one is inside of the halls of academe, there's still not open conversation about how this project of the university in the United States is financed and on whose backs uh, the thing takes the, a, a big toll. I mean, I tell almost any of my students who are graduating who want to go into graduate school, like, slow your roll. Do not do not go like launching right from Wesleyan to graduate school, which a lot of those students who are super smart, they they know how to compete, they know how to posture themselves, they know how to thrive in that institutional environment. I also worry a lot for their emotional lives and for them to think about themselves in other ways outside of that institution before going right back into the thing. But I also want them to have a different relationship to capitalism, and it's not just one that's mediated by the university. Because I think if that's the only structure that they know, and I'm thinking especially of, of again, minoritarian students, if that's the only mediating sort of structure they, they know in relationship to capitalism, I worry for how it sets them up and their path, just in like living their lives uh, as also as subjects of finance capital and thinking that that structure is all that it, it promises or claims to be. I think, you know, instead I encourage them to learn how to think outside of that structure and to just go like go live life and go be a person and have sex somewhere else like go do the things you need to do as a person in your early 20s not just under the eye of you know big old academe yeah i mean because it's there it's in decay but you can come back into it but i think um it's important to give um yourself space outside of it because once you're in it you have to keep finding ways to make under common spaces and lines of flight outside of it yeah, I'm just wondering, Marlena, as you're sitting here, like what any of this is bringing up for you, maybe, or where, where, where you're at. I was thinking a lot about this last point that you're making about taking a break from your undergrad to graduate school. And I mean, it's obviously going to be different for every single person, right? 
But myself as a non-traditional student, like I went to the community college for four years. I worked full time the whole four years I was there and then I was able to transfer to Westminster. And then being here as a full-time student was impossible for me to work full-time, which was meant it was impossible for me to survive on my own in, in our day and age. So by the time I graduated, I just really wanted to get to grad school because I'm like, I've been in college for 60 years. I know what I want to do, but it was set up in a way for me that I had to take a break because I, I couldn't, I didn't have the opportunity to apply to graduate school during my fall semester of my senior year. And <clears throat> there's like partial responsibility on my end for not preparing myself. But at the same time, I do put some responsibility on the college because I didn't really have any mentors who sat me down and said, let's get you ready for grad school or do you want to do that? Again, there's accountability on my end, but it's also like pretty sure that I had peers that had that same mentoring. And it, it's hurtful because you start to question yourself like, well, am I just not like graduate school material? You know, so for me, I was one of those students who really wanted to go straight from undergrad to graduate school. So having to wait a full year and now getting accepted is like a super big deal for me. But the finance part, you know, that that is obviously a huge part of it. Like I've been working since I was 16, 15 years old. So I'm 26 now. I'll be 27 in May. So that gives me 11 years of work experience. And I don't want to be out working in the field because I know I want to be in academia. And I know that there's a lot of like constraints and oppressiveness just being in in that institution. But it's like no matter where I go, there is still that form. Like I'm in social work right now, but I can't wait to get out of social work so I can go back to school. So, yeah, I, I know it's very different for everybody and some people really do need a break. But I feel at least for like minority students that if they just want to go straight to graduate school, like, well, why can't we, and when I say we, I mean our institutions, set up a way for them to have that opportunity because there's plenty of white kids that are going straight from their undergrad to graduate school. Yeah. So it, it's just, it's hard to watch it right in front of your face when you're like, but damn, I want this so bad yeah. and I'm working so hard. So again, it's like, it goes back to the idea, like, am I just not graduate material? And that's, that's how it started to start to feel, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, grateful to hear what you're, you're saying, actually, because you're, you're setting up a different timeline than what, what's, what is the case for a lot of my students at Wesleyan, many of whom are coming out of boarding schools or prep schools, some form of academy, not all of them, some of them are, are public, I, I'm a public school kid, but um, some of them are coming out of public school systems. But a lot of them have been being, so this includes my minoritarian or quote unquote non-traditional students. I'm using the term minoritarian, by the way, this is a term that comes from Jose Munoz's first book, Disidentifications. I'm, I'm using that instead of a, let me see how I want to say, a kind of multicultural university term. I'm using a theoretical term instead. I'm performing something else in saying that. But in, in thinking of my minoritarian students who come from these groomed settings that are also very frustrating for them. So their setup is different than I think what you're describing where you've been working, you've been in the world, you have a different relationship to, to finance capital and going through community college and then coming into a college 
that part of the idea I'm sure for you is that it, it is that it can set you up or set you in a direction toward a longer relationship to academia and to a career in academia. And so you're feeling a kind of impatience. And I hear that. I was very, some of us escape through quote unquote education too. I definitely did. I definitely, you know, but it's like I started grad school having just turned 22. Looking back, I guess, so I'm also speaking from, you know, thinking back, I don't feel regret. I don't believe in that as a, as a sort of emotional state or a conceptual state even to harp, to sit in for very long. But I guess part of the kind of consultation or advice that I give, it does have to do with how young I was when I started. That is because I was escaping through a certain educational trajectory. Yes. And my, you know, I thought I would go to law school. I got into a few law schools and then I did not go to law school because I didn't want to write in the ways that I would have had to learn to write in law school. And I do think of myself first as a writer. As it turns out, in the process of getting my PhD in English, I learned that I love teaching and I do love that dynamic with students, but I'm a writer. So for me to become a writer, the only thing I, I could sort of make sense of coming from my class background and from a school that didn't train that did really didn't set me up or train me either to go where I went. I thought it was through, okay, so I want to become a writer. I'm going to move to New York, be somewhere around New York because publishers are there. Um, <laughs> I knew that, or I thought I knew that. Uh, and then I'll get this degree and somehow this will help me navigate or move between being a certain kind of essayist and a certain kind of poet. So like I read Gayatri Spivak in my third year of school and I didn't have the oh my god why are there all these like fucking footnotes here I like fell in love I was a total like Spivak I was in love I was like oh my god if this is you know if this is how someone can write you know if they can like play with philosophy in this way and do all these like word games and actually tax the reader I love how I like demanding women but um <laughs> Be like, if you can be that demanding in this form, I was like, oh, I'm going there. That's what I want to do. So it was reading like post-colonial feminist theory that I was like, okay, if this is how the kind of stuff I can think about and the kind of stuff I can write about, I'm going there. But I didn't have orientation. I didn't have guidance, you know. So I'm also thinking of how young I was starting graduate school and some of the the emotional dynamics between professors and students across cohorts between students. I think that there were things that for me became like emotionally precarious that had I been a little bit older, you know, I think I would have been able to navigate some of that stuff dif differently than I did, which again is not to say like, oh, why didn't I, whatever, I don't need to waste time doing that. But that is part of, you know, it is, so I'm thinking of my own experience when I give this, this advice or I kind of tell some people to slow their roll. And I'm thinking of the kinds of students I taught like at UPenn and then the students I teach at Wesleyan who both are groomed to be in academia and also my brown and black identified students are very frustrated. They feel angry a lot of the time inside of that institution. And I don't, you know, I try to send every, I try to like get everyone who talks to me in my office out, like, are you talking to a therapist? Are you working through this in therapy? Because I think we all need that too. And because I'm not trained as a therapist, but my students come to me with things that they don't come to other faculty for. So it's not to say, oh, the institution does it right by brown and black. No, like on the contrary, it doesn't ever do it right. 
that's the whole thing. But you, you have been, a, you equipped yourself in a way or life, your path equipped you, higher power, however you want to think about it, equipped you with a different set of experiences and which, and by experience, I mean knowledge. I'm not, I'm not talking about experience. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about you had a certain kind of knowledge coming into this space um, and identified certain desires that you had to keep studying, really, and to keep writing and doing a certain kind of work. And you want to use, you want to become an intellectual, it sounds like, right? So this whole issue of like, am I grad student material? Why is it that white kids get to do it this way, blah, blah, blah. This is where I would, I mean, I would poke just a little bit though, because the way that quote unquote white passing people or white looking people, again, I don't believe there is any such thing as a white person, except a dead person. I don't know what a white person is, but a white passing or a white seeming person, whatever someone that socially has been has been told that that's what they are but someone who comes from like middle class upper middle class educated parents right they have all that everything has been given everything's sort of been plotted out for them yes they have it easier and also that is not a model i want you to aspire to i don't want to aspire to it either because we're not going to get there and also it's not a thing i think we ought to want to get because i think the relationship to capital that generates that kind of lineage is a fucking problem like that is part of the problem this idea that there's subjects who have had everything handed to them and everything's easy they go through undergrad they incur no debt they go into grad school incur no debt they come out of grad school their parents give them a twenty thousand dollar down payment to buy a house they don't go into debt then either and then they're my age you know they're 33 34 30 whatever somewhere in their mid-30s I have friends who as liberal or left or whatever, they're still fucking Americans as, you know, as, as much as they imagine themselves to be aligned with the interests of the left, their whole relationship, their emotional and financial relationship to student loan debt, to the process of being educated, the process of coming into a career has been financed by some other kind of structure that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm not going to ever, I don't have access to this. That's not what sets me up in the world. So again, these disparities, right? I'm, I guess I, I'm a, my personality works a little differently. My sister likes to tell this story of me that as a kid, we grew up in an abusive household, but she likes to tell this, this story that as a kid, I would like stare in the mirror and kind of sing this song to my, or the, I don't know, I would say this thing to myself where I would say like, I was making like goofy faces at myself, but I would say like, I love myself. I love my, I mean, I was, I don't know. I, she likes to say this because she's like, no one rains on your parade. You've always just kind of like, like done whatever. These questions of like, is my shit good enough? Am I good enough? I experience doubt and darkness as a person too. And it doesn't quite, I don't know that I ask myself that same kind of question. I'm always like, my shit is on fire. You know, it's like, I have a different, I'm like, you need my shit. I don't need your shit, actually. I'm going to take it. I'm gonna take it all. I'm gonna read everything. I'm gonna read whatever canon, this, that, and the other. I'm gonna read it all. And I'm gonna learn these structures because I find pleasure in that too. And I'm gonna do my own thing. This is not for me a question, but this is again, part of what academia sets up too psychologically is this like uh, looking for validation, looking for approval and whatever, instead of teaching people how to create and how to be, how to play, how to take the structures that are known, and instead of just reproducing them, how to actually make something new, make something we don't know. This is not what we show people, but this is what I'm much more interested in. So, I mean, just coming back, coming back to, you know, I think where I'm coming from, put you, you know, what you're saying kind of 
pushes up against something I'm saying. And I think that's really productive. I'm glad for that. And there's, I think there's a sort of tether or there's a point of alignment, which is around having, having a relationship to finance capital that isn't just mediated by big structures so that you then as a person moving through the world don't just feel indebted to those big structures psychologically even where you're not financially indebted to them you can think around and outside of them so i i mean i think in what you're relaying and what i'm relaying something of that is still there and i also think then intellectually yeah again like the students i have who want to that are that have studied with me that i have the people who have studied with me who want to go to graduate school they're they're lovely people also they're just like lovely um kind nerds you know who i think are like the sweetest most wonderful people and because there are things about the structure that is soul crushing this is where i also get a you know i have like a tiger mom and i sort of channel some of that i think about my students where i feel protectively because there, there are things that are soul crushing in this process of getting of becoming a discipline or knowing how to signify the codes of a discipline, right? There are things you lose, there are things you gain. It's an exchange. And I guess the thing that I, I am trying to relay or that I want to relay is that, I mean, A, I think we should just be more open about all of this and talk about it more. And I like something that my barber, that my barber Gaia says to me, you know, because I get anxious about this or that. And she says, Rachel, you know, you got to keep your joy intact. And I love that phrase. I love the idea that joy is a thing to keep intact. And so I guess what I am trying to pass on to to folks who want to go into grad school is like, yeah, you're going to learn a discipline. You're going to learn the codes. You're going to fucking be fine. You're hungry enough to want to do this. And you're nerdy enough in a totally anti-intellectual country because we live in an anti-intellectual country. I do think it is a kind of rebellious, insurrectionist act in some cases like yours to say, mm, I want to go into academia and I want to study how to, how to talk about prison narratives. So in that time, like you're going to read I'm sure you're also going to spend more time reading slave narratives and narratives of fugitivity, narratives of flight. My my friend Catherine Brewerball writes about narratives of escape uh, is the is the term that she uses, escapology. So like reading about those different forms, I think is going to be super important. And your being there is not a question of is my shit good enough. Your being there is like they fucking need you to validate themselves through time in history, especially in this moment. You know, and so I think part of, yeah, you're not you're not 20. You know, I do think there is something that's gained in the time and in the way that you've done, you've done this process. Yeah, done your time. They are taking something from you, and you are taking something. It's an exchange. It has to be an exchange. It can't just be oh, I'm coming in as a supplicant to receive the enlightenment of X or Y. You know, you're carrying stuff. You're carrying stuff that that is going to it needs to circulate in the world and it needs to be talked about. But I so I guess, you know, but I mean, just moving through moving through the world is uh, hard and it is going to get harder. When I was in graduate school, one of my siblings was in prison. So this is something that for me to I don't I don't ever not think about that in some way, how these structures because of finance capital and the military and prison industrial complex, they are connected. My experience of academia, my students project this shit onto us because they all think we come from upper middle class families or something. They do this ivory tower. My experience of academia is not of a fucking ivory tower. That's not why I'm there. That's not how I'm there at all. There are 
other things on my mind and in my heart in the in 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 the process. So I guess you know, it, it it's still to me it's just about survival and intellectual survival and intellectual regeneration in a place that really is like hostile. It is inhospitable to immigrants. It is hostile to black bodies, to trans bodies. It prefers that queer bodies not exist. And I, I think kind of a base, something that's underneath all of that inhospitality and hostility is about a culture of anti-intellectualism, you know? So add on to that, that, the, that everything continues to be framed through this one system of capitalism. It's a mess. Your material, are you, you you're fine. Todo bien, you know, you're on your path. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I think going in with a different mind frame, which is like, you're carrying shit, contraband and legit. And it's all good. It's all good. You're carrying what you need to carry in the world, you know? Well, Rachel, thank you for your validation, because that felt like a lot of it. So I sincerely appreciate that. To help us get wrapped up here, there were just a couple of things that I wanted to respond to. In terms of the you know, is my shit good enough? That was definitely an insecurity that I, I know roots in like the imposter syndrome and from other scholars of color that I've talked to, they tell me, you know, that shit never goes away because it's just, it's in you. So I'm glad that I learned that now so that I can address it as I continue to become a legit scholar. Um, no. Well, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, you know, amateur. We're getting there. We're getting there. But I want to give a shout out to Institute Recruitment of Teachers because I did that program last summer and they're the ones that put my ass in check and were like exactly what you were just saying. They're like, you have, you know, to, to quote or go back to Dr. Tarayoso, whose article, whose culture has capital, like just learning about my experience for, you know, the 10, 11 years that I've worked, I'm going to be 27. And not, not even just that, like where I come from, frijoles and tortillas y arroz and all of that, like to get where I am at right now coming from, you know, this very poor family also having a lot of my family members incarcerated, to be specific, every single man in my entire family. So yeah, whose culture has capital? Well, let me tell you, mine does. And that's why I have a bunch of acceptance letters. And it's not to sit and brag, but it's to say, some people are finally waking up that like, yes, you do need me to come into your school and occupy this space because someone is currently not doing that. And I do have stuff to bring to the table. So don't get captured. Don't, don't get, get captured. Caught. Yeah. No, gonna we ain't going to do that. No, <laughs> I, I sincerely appreciate having the opportunity to have this conversation. And although we kind of went off in different mm -hmm. facets, it's good to let the conversation unfold and see where it goes. So. Thanks for joining us in this section, and we are going to have some poetry coming up here in a minute. the second portion of our podcast with Rachel Ellis Neda. We are going to be talking about poetry, specifically Rachel's poetry. There's one poem in particular that we're going to start off with, and Rachel's going to do a reading, which I'm very much looking forward to. So this poem is titled Este Flamboyant Oeste. 
Thank you, Marlene. Yeah, so this poem is mostly in Spanish and we'll talk about the time in my life that it comes out of, sort of collaborative cohabitational context that it comes out of too. The other poems I'll read in the podcast won't, their syntax won't primarily be in Spanish, but this one that we're starting with happens to be. So I invite you, if you don't do Spanish, to sit with it and to enjoy what you don't know. Uh, maybe treat it more like a sound piece if that's, if, and let the sound kind of wash over you. Este flamboyán oeste. Leyendo sobre la utopía, el reuso profundo de Marcusa, al lado de Siga, Harry Potter, Olympia, Sailor Moon 7, Marvin Gaye en vinilo, Calle Luna, Calle Sol, Guns, Butter, Napalm, and Color TV, como el estilo estado de ser unidense, Break with Containment and Contentment, y que, como, que somos receptivos a formas de agresión militar, es decir, que no estamos viviendo una vida. Cómo vivir en lo que está bloqueado de emerger, en un UFO, en la música, isla magia, psicogeográfica de Sun Ra, Ismael Rivera, Mirna, Manu. Michelle habla de la comida como una medicina, como un acto creativa, creativo, la comida como, como desobediencia civil. ¿Dónde vamos a encontrar comida en un mundo en fuego? que se parece al set de la película El Deserto Rosso en un estado de insomnio industrial. Bebe, Olga, bebe, Olga, háblame del deseo de no hacer nada. Enséñame cómo ahora emergió de nada, nadando, llena de arena y sombra del campfire, emergió de Monte Carmelo, vino a la ceiba, que tiene la misma edad que la esclavitud aquí. Era un arbolito cuando los cimarrones corrían por la tierra viequense, cambiando el futuro en su movimiento. Con tus deseos por liveness, Sofía, grabar pero no sacar, explotar, no enfatizar postproducción. La vida cotidiana es a la vez editada, arreglada y llena de sensualidad y quenepas. Esta isla está llena de radicales libres, de ninjas, vaqueros, familias de caballos, caminatas. Aunque dicen que, que hay bloqueos, en todos lados hay caminos. ¿Cómo vivir en la que está bloqueada de emerger? Es decir, Ramón, en una utopía queer, utopía como un fuego lento. ¿Cuál es la diferencia entre una fiesta y una protesta? ¿Cómo convirtió Zambé en Zambé? Zambé, 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 eh, eh. No hay ningún jefe aquí, ni jefa, pero hay musas entre 9 y 15 y 20 musas. Depende en la noche, en la playa, en cuántas hamacas están suspendidas como islas en el aire, árboles como abrazos cósmicos para Nicole. Sí. Lleguemos a Hotel W por la costa, las rocas, con bromas, con bromas sobre Che, Fidel, el Hilton, diciendo Playa Martino, escuchando Bossa Nova Banal, bajo el agua de la piscina. Star Shower, Meteor Shower, días sin shower, así sucios, entremos por, por el río urbano, por el wrong way, por sideways, por el culo, con una bolsa llena de conchas, porque me encanta comer concha y buscar constelaciones por el iPhone. La vida de un carruche es un bon vie. 
Carrucha, cabronas cabroneando, bregando, metiendo, viniendo crusty con boom, con bea y su squeaky sandalia, con zoom y machete. La voz de Eddie Santiago nos llevará a la casa de Javier. El regatón nos llevará a la casa de Ardel. La corola de Lena nos llevará al cielo, que está poblado por músicos como José José, Heavy Javi, Yo Yo y Yo, El Incubierto, Cabros sin Cabras, Aceite de Tiburón, Diego y el Cangrejo Mítico. Me gustaría comer con estos cabrones y escuchar la música de Langosta Radioactiva Chilling en la lucha para siempre. Finca conciencia. Finca bambuitas guay bonito. Ajonjolí con un guineo bajo el sol. Cenizas de, cenizas de pan quemado para el corazón. Encimas de papaya para la digestión. La raíz de maguey para la sangre. Todo el mundo sentando en un círculo después de la caminata casi interminable al lado de los bunkers, en un círculo compartiendo sábila para las ampollas grandotes, tocando sus pies, tocando sus cuerpos, como si fuera una experiencia nueva tocar su propio cuerpo. Sí, todavía somos nuevos en las vidas de las estrellas, sobrevivientes del capitalismo. Escuchando a Robert, imaginando los nenes en protesta con su percusión, Nilda y un duche antes de estar arrestada. Y yo, reescuchando, ¿este flamboyán o este? ¿Por ahí o por allá? No sé, es una decisión colectiva. Thank you so much. It's really great to have your voice reading that poem because clearly when a poet writes something they have, you know, that way of reading it that was a little bit different than mine. So thank you. I think to start with the, the title, you know, it's always, that's always a good place to start when you're reading poetry. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what flamboyan is. Yes. So a flamboyan is a tree that grows in tropical, well, they grow in Southeast Florida where I grew up for part of my life. That's actually, it's always my brother's favorite tree, as I recall, which he wanted my father to plant but my father thought they were too messy. Their flowers were too messy. Um, you could do a psychoanalytic reading of that, of that dynamic there, that its flowers are too messy. Anyway, so a flamboyan, so flamboyanes grow in Cuba also, they grow in Puerto Rico. So this poem, I wrote this poem, how to periodize it, in, in the midst of and also after, um, but I, in the midst of, and I read it on a radio show in Vieques, I was living, cohabitating with a group of artists and some activists too in that group. In Vieques, uh, as part of my friend Beatriz Santiago Munoz's walking seminar, she calls a Seminario Itinerante that she does every year, which is a sort of like alternative, collaborative and pedagogical and cohabitational process. And this is the summer of 2015. It, she did it in Vieques and I joined. And one of the things that we did in our time, I mean, we walked a lot. We walked a lot in Vieques, which is a place that was occupied for decades by the U.S. Navy. This is an island just off the eastern coast of La Isla Grande. It's part of the Puerto Rican archipelago. So we were living outside, camping outside, walking around, meeting artists there, Beatriz and Michel Nono organized this particular seminario. They were already in conversation with different artists there. 
before the group arrived, uh, we were expected. We didn't just show up. <laughs> uh, but we were living outside, and it's important to say that in this process, there are gestures of civil disobedience in what we were doing. Uh, and there's also a specific history of civil disobedience in Vieques and Culebra and other parts of Puerto Rico that I guess I would say like we were channeling that energy too in, in what we were doing there. And actually some of the people who I name in the poem, so there are a lot of names in the poem. And these are my friends and these are the people I lived with and my friends Bea and Olga, Olga Beba said, said after hearing me read this poem in Puerto Rico in, I guess, November, actually, uh, that Bea was like, I feel like I co-wrote that poem. And I was like, that's great. I like, you know, because <laughs> um, there are so many phrases. There are all these sort of like inside jokes that the group, a lot of this language, and I think even why I could write this poem in Spanish, because I don't generally syntax in Spanish, not this much, is because these are words that I was living with and that were coming from people around me in this really beautiful process of cohabitation, uh, where on the other side of it, you know, and during it, I, I mean, like, I love the people who I live, I love, I love these people, the people I name in this poem. You'll hear this in other of my poems, too, that we'll get to in a minute, where I read, I say people's names. And this is, this comes in part, I think, from Tomás Rivera's, his novela, um, Y no se lo trago la tierra, and the earth did not devour him. And one of the vignettes towards the end of the poem, it's like vignette 20-something, it's like towards the end of the novel. Uh, it's a poetic novel, but it's a novel. There's a vignette where there's a character who isn't like interiorized a lot, but he's a poet character. And he writes, he comes seasonally to where the migrant workers um, are living. And he comes and visits also seasonally. And he writes poems for the people in the community. Um, and there's a line, I'm not going to, cite it perfectly right now but there's something that's said towards the end of that little vignette about um, how naming the people of the community is a way of it, like reanimating reanimating their life like bringing them back to life in another form I also yeah I think there's something queer and loving also about me kind of naming the people to whom I feel or with whom I feel attachments with whom I'm in relation because I yeah, like I need my friends and I love my friends to make it through the world. So there's, there are a lot of names here and a lot of phrases that actually come from just cohabitating. So I wrote this poem in the midst of that time together in Vieques and read it as part of a radio show where a bunch of other sound recorded and experiments that we were doing along the way in our time there in Vieques that the group was doing were on that radio show. But there was a moment where we were like lost one day on a walk, lost-ish, you can't get that lost in life keep that in mind you can't get that lost you'll find somebody to talk to to help you um but we had to make a decision we were we were walking through or going to walk down into this area where um kids had set fire to the land and it was this kind of vandalism quote unquote that people who live right around that specific um little valley felt very sad about were very upset about and my friend ardel ferrer also her reading of it was like well no wonder what the kids know how to do is sabotage their own habitation. The Navy was here for decades testing munitions, blowing up missiles, blowing up bombs. There are a bunch of unexploded, but like interred bombs in different parts of Vieques as a residue of the Navy's time there. But her reading of it was like, well, no wonder this is what they know how to do. This is what a hegemonic power was doing here for a very long time. So it's like, it's sad and it's self-sabotaging in a way, and also there's a she had a kind of different structural reading of it. Anyway, we were trying to figure out how to kind of navigate the space, this this valley space, and 
Michel Nono, the, one of the co-organizers of that seminario, an artist, a healer, a farmer, a person I love, she, she, they, was talking to a guy on the road and we were looking out over this valley and part of it's burned and then part of it's green and we're um, looking out over it and, and he's kind of this person who's trying to orient us about how to get to place X, wherever it was we were trying to get to. Uh, where he was pointing to a flamboyant, to this tree. So these are these beautiful, very climbable trees. They have orange or yellow flowers. And if you're hearing the word flamboyant, so if you're having a kind of queer listening moment, yes, you're hearing, you're hearing it right or hearing it left, I guess. Um, you're hearing uh, also what I want you to hear, um, flamboyance. So he was pointing over the valley to like, he was saying, you know, at that flamboyant, you go left, you keep going. And... Michel was like, wait, wait, este flamboyano, este flamboyan, because there were several fl flam flamboyanes uh, looking down over this valley. And so they went back and forth and it was like, no, 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 this flamboyan over here, not that flam flamboyan. So Michel's voice is sort of like, este flamboyan o este. And I was making a sound recording. Uh, this was part of the, 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 the trip. It was very sound oriented, was to make soundscapes while they're in Vieques. Um, and all these different artists have used them in different ways. We've used them in different ways since then. But part of what we were doing was just trying to be in a place and listen, you know? But their conversation and her voice are sort of echoing. But that's what's in the title. It's, you know, and at the end, when I'm saying, I'll translate it, but this, um, you know, y yo reescuchando este flamboyán o este por ahí o por allá, no sé, es una decisión colectiva. You know, so I name all these people in the poem and I delay when my eye comes up and then lyric poetry in free verse and like the post-Whitmanic American tradition in which I also write, the eye is an important gesture and agent in, in lyric and especially like in free verse. But in American poetics, I would say, the eye has a, an important place. Um, and I, in the poem, my eye happens late. It happens in the last few lines and after naming a lot of other folks, but it's this gesture where I, like I'm talking to the group and I'm also, I guess, kind of talking to a poetic tradition where I'm saying like, and where am I? Okay, well, I'm still just re-listening to something, you know, y yo reescuchando este flamboyan. Where am I? I'm caught in sound. I'm caught in nonsense, kind of as usual, you know, not trying to make sense of it per se, but just kind of enjoying this phrase. Um, this takes on a kind of political valence, I think. I hope it's subtle by the end of the poem, but it's like, do we go this way or do we go that way? And so then I'm kind of disavowing my eye to this like, Ijo, where am I? Well, I'm just re-listening to something and I don't know, like, I don't know where to go. I don't know where the path to being on the left is exactly anymore. <laughs> but I feel like all these people in, in the poem are people who I could ask uh, what they think about it. And I think it's a collective decision. So there's a kind of, I don't mean a negation of myself in some like damaging sense, but I'm invoking my eye to then disperse it back into a collective into a group um, because I don't know that the answer, I don't know where to go, <laughs> um, but I feel like I know who to ask what they think about where to go. Yeah, so the short sort of a flamboyant is this tree and a lot of these phrases come out of this cohabitation experience. I want to go back a little bit to the part of the title. Yes, it's flamboyant, the tree, but also the flamboyant word that you said if you hear it, that's exactly what you wanted. So clearly this has some roots in queerness, queer theory specifically. 
specifically, there is a line, <laughs> which, you know, I, I giggled. Por el wrong way, por sideways, por el culo, con una bolsa llena de conchas, porque me encanta comer concha y buscar constelaciones por el iPhone. I mean, the first thing I can think of, and this is my experience reading Munoz, is, you know, this idea of growing sideways. So I'm really interested in what you have to say about that. I like that you use my phrase. My, fr my friend Kacha is, has a show that was just up uh, in New York, and I guess she's it's going up in, I don't know, somewhere in Buenos Aires. I don't know exactly. Anyway, but it's called Growing Sideways. So just a, a shout out to Catalina Schliebner. But um, uh, yeah, Growing Sideways um, and Munoz. Um, so I, I name Marcuse early on. Reading this, I'll that first stand, Leyendo sobre la utopía, reuso profundo de Marcusa. But I'm, I'm, you know, it's like at that point, that or that stanza is kind of a reference to my friend Bea's apartment and sitting in her house and going through her, the books piled, the many, many books, because she's a theory head for sure. But reading Marcuse, who's also very much in Munoz's work, right, around utopia, mm -hmm. but thinking about utopia and then getting to this phrase and and it, this comes the guns butter napalm and color tv comes from marcusa but it's like to think about utopia or to have a utopian fantasy or rather the situation out of which utopian fantasies uh, arise are uh, like dire crisis situations we're in we're in one right now um so the 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 line about eating pues comer concha which is to say eating pussy and there's a uh but this, like before that, the star shower, meteor shower, the asin shower, así sucios, you know, in this, we we arrived dirty to this um, specific part of our path, of our trip. And I, at one point, I was just carrying a bag of conchas. I was carrying, I had my Hudson Valley farmer's market bag, which I, I had to do a lot of farmer's market um eating to get that bag. I was really into the, that bag that summer. I had lived in the Hudson Valley before I went to Vieques that summer and was working on a friend's farm in um, Claverick. And so I had this, this whatever, this tote, I happened to have it with me. And we came across as we were walking in Vieques, this like pile of shells. It was straight, it looked strange. It's like why, um, not on the beach, this was just like on the road. So clearly they had been picked up and then dumped back out. And so I picked up these shells. I don't know why, when you're on a walking trip, adding weight to what you're doing is not is not a good strategy it's not gonna last very long but i picked up these shells um conch shells uh they were you know beautiful and i put them in this my like hudson valley farmer's market bag and for a while i was walking around with them and then they became too heavy so i only continued to carry one but when a friend uh on the trip was like why are you adding weight why are you uh, <laughs> why are you carrying all of those conchas and my rejoinder, I don't know, I was kind of exhausted and out of it much of the time, honestly, because I felt kind of high for a lot of the trip because I was just, you know, tired and physically um, in a blissful way, kind of like maxed out um, from walking so much. But I was like, ah, no sé, es que me gusta comer concha. It just was like a, you know, so this word like a shell or a conch shell, which also is part of a, it becomes a metaphor for pussy or, and then like eating pussy. But the sound, that next line, I buscar constellaciones por el iPhone. I have this. I'm a stargazer, and I, it one of, on the first night that we were sleeping outside on this beach, um, 
uh, on the northern coast in Vieques, the sky it was just like crazy as night fell and it was so dark and how lit up the stars happened to be that night and we could also see um culebra so this other island from the beach so it's having this sort of like trippy like uh, like seeing this other island which then makes me feel this like archipelagic connection and then also seeing the stars also uh, i mean yes they're constellations but i see them also as like archipelagos in the sky um but I had my iPhone and I was like looking on this very dark beach and I didn't know a lot of the people on the trip yet, but I'm like sitting there doing my nerdy stargazer thing, like trying to find whatever constellations in the sky. And someone was like, why are you wasting? Like, I can't believe you're wasting, not why are you wasting, but like how funny that you're wasting your, or using your phone charge, the bit of charge you have to look for um, stars. So, I mean, those, those lines, there's something I like about the sound, the repetition of concha as a shell, concha as pussy, and then the k, the con becoming constelaciones, uh, and then the invocation of this kind of like banal, but also important, you know, our iPhones. I rely on mine for all kinds of things. Um, it was my compass too at points. Yeah, I don't know. There's sort of like just a pleasure in, in the repetition of certain sounds there, um, both in what they mean and just also what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I forgot what you asked me, but oh, the concha and the flamboyance, right? So there was also, uh, well, I won't give another anecdote because I want to read a couple more poems, but uh, the title, yeah, I mean, I think there's a yearning in the poem and I invoke my friend Ramon Miranda Beltran too, like where I'm asking him because we were talking about queer form, like queer form in an aesthetic sense for a lot of our walk, like when he and I would walk together, we were talking about what what constitutes queer form in a non-representational way, like what is queer art, whatever, these kinds of conversations. And so I was thinking both aesthetically, I guess, about like what constitutes queer form um, in our meanderings around as a group, and also just thinking of that form of co cohabitation. So whatever people's different sexual practices are, that that form of cohabitation and the gestures of civil disobedience and the gestures of collaboration and that we were for a time enacting some sort of, I mean, in my mind, it is like a utopic, fantastical thing that we were doing too, in the setting of an occupied, of, of, for a long time, military occupied um, place. That there, that is queer to me, and not and not in a again like in this representational way per se. But it's like, what are we doing together? What are we trying to do together? We're trying to make dynamics that get us out of patriarchal expectations of life and linear time and so for me like wandering together wandering with people there is something queer about it because it's not teleological we're not trying to arrive at an end point um yeah so thinking about queer form i think in a couple ways there i'm going to read a poem that i wrote after the massacre in at pulse the the queer club in orlando a summer I was living in a friend's place in Bedsty, thinking a lot about place. Um, and this is before I would go and live in Puerto Rico for five months uh, this past fall. Yeah, so thinking about place uh, and as a kind of diasporic, I don't know, Floridian, I have family still in Florida and its landscapes are very much in my imaginary. Yeah, so I wrote this poem after, not long after the massacre. It's called A Church in the Wild Pulse. The other side's green is nowhere. It's shot through, like the black church in Charleston, like the women's health clinic in Colorado Springs. 
But there is a church in the wild. It's a queer club. This is the summer of Jordan's. We are dressed to take off, fly away. Good Lord, every texture of air from grade minimalism to Baroque tropicality on swishy boys and muscled girls treads up and down the bedside-bound sea. The court is all over these streets. I mounted shelves with a hammer drill. They fell. Surfaces. The state. Sex. How am I supposed to love like this? How I'm supposed to make love like this? To love my summering self, I ordered a caramel soft pack that arrived too pink and thought, that'll look imperial on all my bronze and curl. But fuck it, I'ma use it. What kind of commodity is this that can't be exchanged anyways? I asked my dick. I call her Ana Castillo. Daddy, you got a daughter for a son, she spoke back. To make the most of my dead American dollars, I bought pennies and copper and black, two ex-Memphians. Warhol's jet silver is now the past. Aconfra's helmeted astronaut treads this earth like lot. The present is gay marriage giving birth to police cars dazzled by rainbow stripes. Nostalgia for nostalgia makes me itch, but boy, I tell you what, I need to feel something else on my skin besides goosebumps. Tim's ash and gold needs Simone's lotion to balm before insurrection. The fire next time has already happened, but their dried up shit is still hoofing around hunting witches. I'm a witch. You're a witch. This social experiment is all obstacles and no lubricant. No Latinxes I know slept last night. No queers I know slept last night. No mothers I know slept last night. Dispersed insomnia. This country just massacred more dreamers. Svetlana says the queers in Pulse have to have been the sweetest people in the world, you know? Who would have been there, gay dancing, curving their brown bodies on the misty light-lasered air with the shame of pride? I keep hearing Siggy saying, becoming queer is the best thing that could ever happen for a person. There's the news that stays news. Ramdasha's traded anguish for nonverbal communication. Staying woke feels sweeter by night. And my heart leaps to my students. DJ believers, hopped up depressive holy rollers who I love. I'm saying, y'all gotta know how to think critically in America, which is to say, how to move in the shot through light of every nightlife. Munoz is there too, no? Um, I am an ex-Memphian also. I lived in Memphis for some time. I invoke Penny Hardaway there, uh, another Memphian. Um, some Baldwin in there. I will read one more piece and then, uh, which is a kind of spell. It's a kind of spell and it also will move me between Puerto Rico and Brooklyn, which is, I think, where my heart has been back and forth between those two spaces now um, for a little while. A spell, Big Dipper, Shark Bite, Curcuma, Caoba. One. From the roof of El Falansterio, I see Orion's belt, Alnita, Alnilam, Mantaka. The Big Dipper will be one way to see the scar, the surgeon says, its starry scoop. Texture for me her colors, cream, copper, red, lush, spotted cat, impossible Aries. Not 0.8 millimeters, not one millimeter, but slightly less. Slightly less feels like everything just now. Epidermis, dermis, subcutaneous tissue, fascia, they'll cut her above the muscle, they'll cut it out. Out is gone. Transvertere is lifted and sewn and clean as the heavenly gates. Big Dipper, shark bite, clean fucking margins. Ben, claridad. 
la 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 ven claridad hay una fuerza que no puedo evitar what we know is microscopic but it isn't where we end scale stage what be what you have before you know what you have before we knew each other what orphic butchered mess bobs in our bloodstreams what immuno beauty grants us more time not ulcerated but mitosis becoming mitoses see si, cero transformándose en la una split pero no one is not five billions of cells in one mitosis no entiendo nada de esta matemática no lo aguanto yo tú te aguantas te quiero, and I'll set your table, and hold your hand, and I'll feed your cat. Y DJ no, DJ melancholy dyke, DJ designer imposter, DJ transsexual, DJ dad inside, DJ softshell crab, DJ cherry popel, DJ cell billionaire. What the fuck is cancer? They say mima, I think mi madre. They say lymph, I think cenizas. Hashtag ocean emotions, and I don't know if she means Frank or Yamaya. Yamaya, Yamaya, oh, 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 Yamaya. Positive vibrations. I'm a rub my Cuba on your Alaska. I'm a palm the Puerto Rican cells I'm bregando with on yours Belmont, yours Kansas City, yours Brooklyn, Atlas, Atlantic, Tundra, Tsunami, for this is healing. Two. Se dice conspirar y conmover is a thread to sew but not a t-shirt, a thread to sew but not a t-shirt to sell. Moverse, posar, say, reverse vertigris, ritualize vital force en vez de decay. Mar y posa, mariposa, maricón, mariconería, ferretería ponce, mi zorra, lloro desde el balcón de yoyo, where before I've said Katie, the necromancy. CA says queer isn't an umbrella. And if it is, it's closed, motherfucker. Sword, cane, lightning bolt, dildo says of his beloved earth that quartz is not like but is a library check it out take it out wear it round my neck instead of an id don't you get it i don't care what i am but what i am doing what i am doing what i am doing here when i need to be there make my umbrella into a paddle and row this boat ashore her thighs like shores shoals of bieke smooth my skin like hallelujah three Outside AC Libreria, Jose got called faggot. Dude called me a man, then not a man, then a faggot, then something that needed, needed saving from myself. I've heard all that before when they tried to save me from myself. John 1.4, old news is that gospel is passé, es demasiado, demasiado, demas fucking out, coño. El mundo es dolor, pero no es dolor el mundo. In hell, in hell, there's heaven and schools of shimmering fish. Ella está en su camino. Heartburn, sunburn, hangover, she says. 2016, un bad trip. Pero época, el falansterio, las calles de Puerta de Tierra sin semáforos, her warped reflection in that blue mirror, our pelican friends shaping over and over and over the beauty of an arc, a scooped bill, a plunge taken anyways, and everything to worry over but dive. Beasel and super chillin, two by two we board the ark. You don't need to ever worry again. You've got a chihuahua to do that for you, she says. And now it's nothing but a badass scar. Abre la puerta a los sentimientos claros. Nos escapan fugitivos. Va amaneciendo, va amaneciendo, amaneció. Despedidas, forgone, for saludos foretold. 
don't bring to me what you need to take to someone else because all I can hold right now is out is gone, out is gone, lifted and sown and clean as the heavenly gates. Curcuma, los sentimentos claros, caoba con dos corazones. Thank you, Rachel. There's a lot to process there. And specifically with the Pulse poem, I'm not going to lie, that was super heavy, honestly still processing it myself. But one thing that I've, you know, picked up on with the poetry that I have read that you've produced and that you so graciously read to us today is your your play with words. There's a, a lot of that going on and I'm I'm 100% sure it's intentional. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. I'll be brief because I think we ought to, also if you're dwelling with feelings, you're still kind of sitting in some feelings from that poem, let that be. But I, yeah, I also, the spell poem that I read after that poem, I hope is one that also opens up. It is a kind of supplication too for clear feelings to come in. Uh, which may include knowing who the enemy is and knowing who our friends are. But uh, yeah, A Church in the Wild Pulse, um, there where I'm playing, I invoke Ana Castillo in a couple ways, both as the name of my dick and uh, a line from her, a title of hers, Massacre of the Dreamers. I invoke this country just massacred more dreamers. So again, like it's this sort of like having a conversation or trying to signify who it is that I and my poetics am remixing and talking to. And there's something elegiac about this, right? Like feeling loss and also turning to my friends to try to find words for how they're feeling and how to, how to um, move with what is going on. Um, and wordplay is always, yeah, I want us to play. I want us to play in our relationships. I want us to play in our dynamics and play with, um, boundaries in ways that are healthy um, for us, whatever exactly that might mean. Um, but I, I think of um, poems actually as, let's say, um, a form that sets up certain expectations. I mean, a lot of, anyway, I teach poetics too, right? I'm a poet, but I teach this stuff. And in many cases, or uh, in many experiences I've had, my students find poems like scary. They're like these, it's this kind of rigid form it's like, oh my God, I don't, you know, I don't want to read this thing. Um, and so I think, uh, I don't know, for I, I, I love poetry and the way that I do it, it's also, um, I am playing with my expectations of the form uh, and playing at making the form. Um, I can't say, I don't know who my readers are. I was saying this in a poetry workshop here the other day that I don't, I don't, like part of me doesn't want to know. Um, I want these things to go out and move on their own towards precisely towards the, towards what I don't know. I find that actually very comforting. Um, but I think of myself as also playing with the form, even as like there are these sounds, these phonemes and things that I'm signifying that also are playful, even in a context of feeling loss and confusion and anger. I was like, Obviously, I think a lot of us were felt very angry and also felt scared, too, um, after that massacre. And I felt like I want to fucking, I don't mean right away, but with time, I felt like, and I want to go dance. And it's important, the space of the queer club um, 
for me, for my own, like in my own life um, has been a really, and continues to be like moving my body in a queer club continues to be a really um, like life-saving, a really important um, kind of movement for me. So, I mean, I think there's a kind of choreography that I'm playing with too in this particular poem and how the words um, and the lines move. Uh, and it's because dancing is also in the poem. Um, even as uh, like, and like after this, there was a, I, I felt anxiety about um, a different kind of anxiety on the street and in certain spaces about homophobia for sure. Um, about homophobia and about this country's obsession with guns and this like cowboy fantasy that, that people have here too, but thinking about um, the discourse around that massacre, right? Uh, I think the closet and the enforcement of the closet um, and shame are such, have such violent effects and it's, they, they are violent. Um, the administration of those sorts of spaces of oppression and sexual repression are, are violent. Um, and so mindful of all of that, also wanting to <laughs> encourage play and encourage touch and turning to friends and ritualizing community. These are all things that are, I think are life-saving, that I think are really important. Um, and poetic space is sort of just one space in which I can kind of move myself too. Um, there's a kind of dance I'm, I'm doing with the page. Well, I think I speak for everybody when I say that we're grateful for your writing and your poetry and putting it out there because at least for me as a queer Latinx myself, it resonates in a lot of ways and it's the type of poetry that we need, that we're craving that's not there. So yeah, definitely thank you for sharing and reading with us. Definitely appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this podcast special from Sugar House Sound. If you want to hear more podcasts and interviews with visitors to Westminster's campus, follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes by searching for Sugar House Sound. This has been a Westminster College Forum Media production. See you next week. <laughs>